0: We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the the Colossians, uh, the church there in Colossae that he wrote to with the the book we call Colossians. And in this series to this church, we've been instructed that Christ should be the center of our lives. We're to place him there. He's to be upheld in all that we do. We're to focus on him because in him we have new life. That's where our life comes from. He is, is... The one that gave us that life, so now he is to be the focus of our life. Making our decisions should be based on his character. His instructions should transform our thinking in all areas of life. Christ is to be our life. Well, over the past several weeks, Paul's been reminding us how this transformation in our thinking, to put Christ in center, is to work itself out in our daily lives. He started with the church. We're to have Christ transforming our church there should be an effect within our church because of Christ that ultimately should produce unity that is the center because unity will display Christ to the world around us and more fully in in a magnified fashion as I've said other times it's like a a single light versus many lights joined together gets brighter and brighter you know the candle lights the brighter the candle lights the more it's seen well our church should be that Last week, we were informed that our new life in Christ should have an impact in our home life. Christ should change us there. This transformation of Christ should have an effect that we will see in our interactions with those who are closest to us. We'll respond to those within our homes that, that we are closest to in a way that displays Christ's work in our lives. Last week, we looked at the specific instructions Paul gave to wives and husbands, to children and fathers. Well, this week, Paul continues looking at this close home-life relationship, but, but he does so by, by addressing home-life relationships that, fortunately, and you know, I say that fortunately, are not present in our culture. The relationship of slaves to masters. Paul's talking to slaves and masters who live in the same household. Again, it's that close daily interaction that they would have. And while we do not have slave and masters living together in the same household, there are nonetheless principles that we can find in the passage we'll look at today that will help us live more fruitful lives as Christians. It just takes us a little more work to get to those principles because the relationships are not exactly transferable to us. The, the slave and master relationship, it comes up in several New Testament passages. The, the standard approach is to make these passages applicable in our lives by, by creating a parallel between a slave and an employee and a master and an employer. My, I, myself, I've done that in many of the passages that talk about the slave-master relationship, just transferred it to employee-employer relationships. Today, however, I'm going to deviate from that approach. And what instead of, of, of transferring the slave to the employee and the master to the employer, instead I'm going to extract five principles today that apply to our work lives whether we're the, in the role of an employee or an employer. You, you see, the overall idea that I want to see this morning, that the idea that, that really drives all that Paul says in our verses today is the idea that our work life should display Christ to our world. Our work life should display Christ to our world. Christ. Displaying Christ, that's that's the the common thread through all of these passages we've been looking at. Displaying Christ should affect how we live in our church, it should affect how we live as husbands and wives, it should affect how we live as children and parents, it should affect how we live in our work. Letting the world see the glory of Christ, that's been driving all of the instructions in chapter 3, and it continues to be the driving emphasis. Displaying Christ is why Paul is concerned here about this relationship. As Paul considers this relationship, he's really looking at another one of the close relationships that Christians of his time would certainly find themselves in. Close relationships, interactions that they would have for hours and hours of every day. And he's concerned that during those hours of interaction, Christ needs to be on display. Well, as Christians, we do not spend hours each week interacting with people as either slaves or masters those categories that, that Paul addresses in his verses. Yet most of us do spend hours interacting with other people in our various workplaces. Large portions of our lives, for many of us, probably more hours than we even spend at home are spent interacting in the workplace. Before we can extract the five principles that, from what Paul writes, however, we, we need to make sure that we understand what he has written to the believers in Colossae. One, one of the basic boundaries that, that we need to have in place for proper biblical interpretation is that a passage can never mean what it never meant. In other words, we, we cannot find a principle in the text that the original readers would have not found when they first read the text. A, a text cannot take on new meaning as time passes. As, as new readers come along, we can't discover something that was never seen before. That The way a text applies can vary over time, but the fundamental meaning must remain the same. So we need to make sure we understand what this text meant when Paul wrote it to the church in Colossae before we can extract these five principles. This morning we're picking up, as you can see on the screen, well, you could see on earlier, I didn't know, I forgot, I already moved on to the next slide. We're picking up in verse 22 of chapter 3. Verse 22, that's where we're at this morning. So join me in verse 22 As Paul writes here to the church there in Colossae, addressing slaves, first of all. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Clearly, Paul is addressing slave and masters here. That's very clear. Slavery was a large part of the Roman Empire. Historians estimate that in large cities, as much as a third of the population were slaves. When you got to Rome itself, at some points in time, historians think that number may have crept as high as ratio of 50%, being slaves in the city. When you go out to the rural area of the Roman Empire, large aspects of the agricultural work was done by slaves. It was just a, a huge portion of the Roman Empire. Unlike the, the sordid history of slavery in America, Roman slavery was not based on skin color. That wasn't what determined a person was a slave or not the color of the skin. But there was still in Rome a very large ethnicity component, an ethnic component. That, that's because many of the slaves in Rome were based on people groups that Rome had conquered. Rome would go in, into war against a people group, conquer that group, and those people that were left over after the war was over were taken as slaves. So that ethnicity in general would be a slave, would be slaves. They also had a number of slaves that were men who had actually, men or women for that matter, sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt. Or sometimes they sold their children to pay off a debt. They got so deep in debt that that was one way to to deal with it. Another large source of slaves in Rome were children born to slaves. Any child born to a slave woman was a slave, regardless of who the father was. So slavery was very large in the Roman Empire, and there was an ethnic component, but it was different in that it wasn't skin color-based. Still, slave was huge in their culture. People were born there. Slaves were such a large segment of the population, it really In some sense, it's not surprising to to learn that they were a significant portion of the church. You you think about the the history of slavery in America. Many of the slaves became Christians. They formed a large portion of the church of Jesus Christ in that time. Well, same thing here in Roman. It's not surprising to find that they're a large segment of the church, but what is surprising is to find Paul directly addressing them here as responsible people. Paul addresses the slaves directly. We need to understand that in Rome, much like in America, slaves were considered property, not people. They, they had no legal status at all. Yes, in, in Rome, if you understand Roman history at all, there were paths through which a slave could gain their freedom. There, there was a process for slaves to gain freedom, but it was the exception more than the rule that they actually achieved that. Until that point, though, as long as a person was a slave, a, 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 a slave was considered on essentially the same legal level as a chair or a table. The owner could dispose of the slave however he saw fit. That's why for Paul to address slaves directly in his letters, and he does it in more place than just Colossians, for Paul to address slaves directly, that is surprising. The simple act of treating slaves as people As image bearers, valued by God, people instructed by God, that's enough to begin undermining the institution of slavery itself. It might help us to understand our text this morning to recognize the Bible never excuses slavery. At the same time, the Bible never pushes for the overthrow of slavery either. The Bible simply acknowledges slavery is a condition that many people will find themselves within, many Christians will find themselves in, and addresses that condition. Paul does tell slaves in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if the opportunity presents itself to, to free yourself from slavery, take the opportunity, but that's the closest Paul ever gets to addressing a change of status for slaves. Rather, the primary concern of Paul as he addresses slaves and the other apostles where they're addressed is, is that slaves will reflect Christ in the context of the life they find themselves. Their context of life may look different from that of a free person, but their priority is the same. Christ. Christ. The instruction that Paul gives slaves the command, really, it's like the ones we looked at last week. It's a command here. It's the same one he actually gives the children that we looked at last week in verse twenty: obey, obey. Slaves, obey your masters. They're to obey. Now you may recall last week that I explained the difference between obey, like we found in verse twenty for children in. The command to wives, be subject in, in verse 18. The difference assumes that the person in the authority position of the relationship has the right to issue commands. Be subject means that the, the wife is to recognize the authority of her husband and let the, her husband make final decisions on matters that, that pertain to both. The ultimate decision. Obey takes authority a step further. Obey includes the, the issuing of commands that are to be followed. The, the person in the authoritative position has the right to issue commands. In other words, Paul is telling slaves, you're to do whatever your master tells you to do. For a slave, now that was a legal obligation in the Roman Empire. Failure of a slave to obey a master's instruction was legally punishable by by corporal punishment, beatings or, or whippings. Um, in some extreme cases, it was legally punishable by capital punishment. In fact, it was mandated by the state for a few conditions that a slave who disobeyed in this manner would be put to death. Yet Paul takes this obligation for a slave to obey, and he moves it from this legal realm that was well known in the, in, in the culture of the day, and he moves into a spiritual realm. There is a much more significant reason Paul tells the slaves to obey than than merely their personal safety. Christ's reputation is at stake. Of course, Paul also addresses the masters directly. Legally, masters may have absolute authority over their slaves, but again, Paul moves things from the legal realm into a spiritual realm. The legal authority that master holds does not remove the master's Christian obligation. The master is just as responsible to reflect Christ in the relationship as the slave. As I said, fortunately none of us find ourselves in the situation of being either under or over another image bearer in an absolute sense none of us are slaves are masters we are not over another image bearer or under another image bearer in our day and age we don't have that legal situation at the same time most of us spend vast portions of our weeks in, in positions of relatively using that word relative not absolute relatively inferior or superior authority positions in the workplace There's people that are over many of us. Probably most of us have people over us. Some of us also have people under us in the workplace. From an authority standpoint, positions of of superior authority and inferior authority, we have that kind of relationship. It's a relative relationship. It's not absolute. None of us are slaves or masters during these hours of our lives. But we are Christians. We are Christians. The concern to reflect Christ is just as much our concern as it was for the believers in the church in Colossae. Our work life should display Christ to the world. In that sense, we are not different from the slaves or the masters in Paul's day in what we are to do with our lives. We are to display Christ in the hours of our lives through the relationships that we have Yes, those relationships will have an authority structure within them, but within the context of that structure, we are to display Christ. Our work life should display Christ to our world. So how can we do that? How can we learn from what Paul says here where there's absolute authority structure to apply in our relative authority lives? Well, Here's where we get to the five principles that, that we can extract from what Paul writes. Four from the instructions he gives to the slaves and one from the instruction he gives to his master. Five principles. Number one, principle one. Our work life should display Christian integrity. Our work life should in display, display Christian integrity. Integrity is that consistency of behavior idea. Much like a slave was not to work, according to verse 22, only when the master's eyes were on him, neither should we. We should work the same whether our boss happens to be in the the room or not. It's a simple matter of integrity, that we're consistent in how we behave. I remember a year that I happened to teach a, a class in a Christian high school. I was only teaching a single class, and and it was kind of midday, so I would come into the school and and walk through the hallways right before my class and teach my class and then walk out through the hallways. And what I observed during that time was I would see students behaving very rudely to their classmates, maybe because I was not a full-time teacher. In fact, I didn't even know some of the students' names, and they probably knew that. If they weren't in my class, they didn't really know me, they just kind of ignore me. So they'd behave very rudely toward their classmates. But then I'd observe one of the full-time teachers happened to walk down the hallway, and behavior changed like that. Some of these same students that were so rude would come right alongside that teacher. Hello, Mr. So-and-so, how's your day been? I hope it's a good day for you today. I'd actually see at times the same student that was being rude to a classmate hold the door for that classmate to let them in when the teacher was there. There was no integrity in the actions. By contrast, Paul says, as believers, we are to have sincerity of the heart because we fear the Lord. That idea that we have translated sincerity that, that is uh, simply an idea of singleness, an idea of simplicity. In other words, we are to have a single heart, a one heart. We are to behave the same way all the time. Our external behavior should match our inward attitude. It should be one of of seeking the reverence of our Lord. Fearing our Lord means we reverent our Lord. We should have that all times regardless of who's watching us. So let me ask you, friends, how is your workplace integrity? Are you displaying Christian integrity you know, it's possible that the only two people who really know the answer to that question is you and Christ. Some of you can be really good at making sure nobody else really knows my, my lack of integrity at work. I, I make sure that nobody sees me when I behave differently. But Christ does. Christ knows. Does the effort you put forth show that you fear him? In other words, that you reverent, reverence Him. Our work life should display Christ to our world. Our work life should display Christian integrity, number one. That's the first principle, Christian integrity. Number two is similar, but still different. Our work life should also display Christian diligence. Christian diligence. There's overlap between integrity and diligence, but they're not the same. We see this principle in verse 23. The New American Standard translates Paul as, do your work heartily. What Paul literally writes is, is, do your work from the soul. In other words, we're to put everything we have into our work. All effort that we can expend is to be put there. There's no halfway good enough effort. No does Paul instruct slaves to have this attitude in whatever you do. Whatever you do, do you work hardly. That that means there there's nothing that was too mundane or too insignificant to, to warrant less than putting forth every effort available. I, I know I've used this story before, but I think back in my life of this story every time I see this principle in scripture. During, during my college days, I spent my summer, as I've shared before, working for a man who was running a custom harvest crew. We, we would take these l- combines, those large harvesting machines you've probably seen pictures of. We'd take them from his house in South Dakota, drive down, well, haul them down. We didn't drive the combines down the highway, but we'd haul them to Oklahoma and then follow the harvest north as, as crops ripened. I did that for all the way, well, most of the way through college, I I worked for him. When the weather was good, we would work long hours. 90-hour week was not unusual at all, and that was in six days, because he was a Christian, we always took Sunday off, and we went to church on Sunday, so in six days, it was not unusual to work 90 hours in those days. You do the math, those were long days. Well, I was first on the crew, the the first year, maybe the first two years, I don't remember, we were paid by the hour. And every day over breakfast, we'd try and remember how many hours did we work yesterday, and we'd fill that out, and we'd be paid by the hour. Well, I worked with a couple guys from my home church, and, and... at least one of them had worked for several years, even longer than me, and after a year or two, we asked the man, can we just, you know, every year, every month is coming out to about the same pay, can we just go with the salary and not track our hours? We're working the hours that, that are here, let's just go with that, and he agreed, he, and that's what he did. So he just paid us each month the basic average of what our hours had worked out to over the many years, and, and that's what we did, and that worked great until we hit a rainy stretch. And then we hit this period of rain where for several days we were unable to harvest. And I'll never forget the day that it rained again in the morning. And we went for lunch with our boss, and he says, we're going out to the field this afternoon. And we drive out to the field in his truck. He gets out of the field, and he puts several bottles of car wax on the hood. And he says, wax the combines. In all my years of farming, I have never heard of anybody waxing combines. You just don't. You don't wax combines, or at least as far as I knew. But he had concluded, you know, I'm paying you for all these days and you're not doing any work. In our mind, that was just a balance for the long weeks we had worked. But in his mind, I'm losing money because you're being paid. Wax the combines. And then, as we started, he jumped back in the vehicle and said, I'll come pick you up for dinner or supper is what we called in the rural country, I'll come pick you up. Well, the guys I worked with and I, we failed miserably when it came to diligence. We knew it was made-up make work, made up work and, and we did not work very hard. We did not display Christian diligence at all. The only fortunate part I can say in hindsight is at least we were in the middle of the field and no one saw our absolute failure. Three Christian guys that did a very poor job that day. Folks, we're to work diligently because we see our work as ultimately for the Lord, not for men. Our work is a sacred duty. It cannot be mundane. It cannot be insignificant because we're called to do it for Christ. If that principle was... There for slaves who really had no choice in in who they worked for. It, it, It most certainly applies to us who have chosen to place ourselves in our position of employment. None of us are being forced to work where we work. All of us claim to be Christians. Our work, whatever it is, if it is honorable work, should be viewed as a sacred duty. And if it's not honorable, then as Christians, we shouldn't be there to begin with. Christ demands our diligence. Our work life should display Christ to our world. Principle number two. Our work life should display Christian diligence. Number three. It should also display Christian hope. Our work life should display Christian hope. Look at the glorious reminder that Paul gives The slaves in verse 24. From the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Heaven awaits. Heaven awaits. Because we are in Christ, heaven awaits. Remember, as I've said before, Paul's assumption by this point in this letter, he's writing to Christians. These are believers. If you hear this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, He's not writing to you. He's not talking to you, but I'd love to talk to you. Come talk to me after the service. I'll share with you how you can know Christ as Savior. Paul's writing to Christians. They pop my email up. Send me an email. I'll get with you, and we'll talk about how you can know Christ. Paul's writing to Christians, and as Christians, heaven awaits us. It's guaranteed. We are saved. We are in Christ. That's how he worded it at the beginning of the letter. We are in Christ, saved, saved. We are to be rejoicing in that status. We're also obligated by that status. Over the years, I've been in position at times to be asked to do some pretty petty jobs, pretty nasty jobs. I remember cleaning out a grain bin one time. It's for the same boss that had me wax the the combines. He asked me, clean out a grain bin. When we got... Back to his farm in South Dakota, I spent the fall working for him just as hired help. And, and one year he had a grain bin that had a, a hopper, a cone shape uh, to it that developed a leak. So the last two feet were just muck of water and grain and mildew and mold and, and ferment and nasty. It, nasty, but it was not going to flow out. So he had me climb into the bottom of that, that bin and scoop that mess out with a shovel and a bucket and to haul it out from the cone. Now, it wasn't really an unreasonable request. There was no other way to get it out. There really was no other option. But I remember I smelled so bad when I was done that you could still get a whiff off my skin two days later. It was that nasty. Certainly the slaves in Paul's day... I'm sure, faced similar unpleasant experiences. There was no reason a slave would expect to have pleasant jobs. I'm sure some of their experiences were far worse than anything I've ever experienced. At least, even in my experience, I could go take a shower afterwards and clean up. But Paul reminds slaves here that despite whatever you might be instructed to do, you are serving Christ. Plus, Because you're serving Christ, you have the promise of an eternal inheritance. Think about that. Do we recognize the magnitude of that reminder? You have an eternal inheritance. Slaves did not inherit. On a rare exception in in Roman history, there are a few exceptions where slaves inherited freedom. Sometimes a a really good slave as a master, they, they were given their freedom or something like that. But by and large... Slaves did not inherit things. But Paul says Christians do. Christians inherit the greatest thing. Heaven awaits. They already knew this truth. Paul words it there in verse 24, knowing this is something they know, but, but when you're in the midst of that mucky, ugly job, that the worst thing, the thing that causes you want to want to quit, remember your eternal hope. Heaven awaits. Heaven awaits. There's nothing greater than that. As you go about your daily lives, as you're working hour after hour in what might be drudgery, always go back to the the reality. The heaven awaits. The hope will never fail. We have the same hope. Our Christian hope is just as stupendous. For, For a slave in their context, this would be, shockingly stupendous. If the fact that heaven weight fails to motivate us, it's likely because our lives are not hard enough. Because we have the same hope out there. Regardless of what we encounter in our daily work life, eternity lies before us. Let's display that we serve Christ because Christ is the one who has given us our eternal hope. Our work life should display Christ to the world. That means our work life should display Christian hope. That is principle number, where am I at, three? Yeah, three. That's principle number three. And that principle is balanced then with number four. There's a balance. We have that hope. But we also should remember that our work life should display Christian fear. There's a balance here. The same Christ who gives us eternal hope has promised that he will address all wrongs. All wrongs. I think oftentimes we we read verse 25 and we think Paul is beginning right to the masters. Masters, don't get a high head on you because any wrong you do to slaves is going to be addressed. But that's not the flow of things here. Paul is... Seeming to address still the slaves. He hasn't moved on to the masters. And every other time when he moves on, he starts with who he's addressing. So I'm convinced he's addressing slaves. Slaves, remember, Paul reminds them that Christ is coming to address all wrongs. Including any wrong that is committed. Christ is going to address all of our wrongs. Because Christ... We'll judge without partiality. It's so easy for us to convince ourselves that unfair treatment justifies an improper response. Our boss is unreasonable. Our boss is a jerk. He demands long hours without any reward. It's okay if I knock off and he doesn't know about it early because he's not in the office. It makes sense, right? Even if he wouldn't approve this, flex time. I deserve flex time. Or, you know, the project manager has set a project schedule that is absolutely impossible. Why wouldn't we, as a project team, sit around at lunch and grumble about their silliness, or maybe we use stronger words, of our project manager? The list of situations in our justifications that that we can come up with to to do less than what Christ calls us to is nearly infinite. Yet the answer to why our our justification fails in every single instance is that we too will face judgment from our Lord for any and all sinful responses that we have to difficult situations every sinful response christ is not partial he will not give us a pass just because our lives are tougher than we think they should be remember our god is sovereign he's placed us in these situations and he's placed us there because he knows that in that situation we can bring glory to him by reflecting christ there is no excuse He will judge us for every failure to live out what he expects. Now, I will mention in passing that it's possible that Paul includes verse 25 here for the slaves in Colossae because of Onesimus. Onesimus was coming to the city with this letter. Now, some of you may recognize that name, some of you may not, but Onesimus is the slave who ran away from Philemon. We have a, a letter written to Philemon that deals with the situation with Onesimus. Onesimus is coming back to Philemon, who's part of the church here in Colossae. As a runaway slave, Onesimus fled to, to Rome, and he hid out in Rome, and he just happened to come in contact with Paul, as God happens to bring people into contact with believers all the time. And Onesimus... Accepted Christ as Savior. And Paul is sending him back to his master. He, they ran away from his master, who is a Christian. And Paul is encouraging Philemon in that letter to him to accept Onesimus back, not as a runaway slave, but as a brother in Christ. Paul may be including this verse here because he wants to make sure that other Christian slaves that are sitting in that very same church and seeing what Paul tells Philemon to do, that they don't come to the conclusion, it's okay if we do wrong because our masters are to forgive us. We're Christians. Instead, he says, you have an obligation as Christian slaves to display Christ. And Christ will judge you for your failure. Are we Christians? The same is true for us. If we're Christians, if we're Christian employees... There's an expectation. There will be consequences for our failure to display Christ for wrongdoing, regardless of the consequences that may motivate us to do the wrong. We will not lose our Christian inheritance. That was number three. That's fixed in Christ. That is completed by Christ's sacrifice. That's our eternal hope. But we will stand before Christ. And 1 Corinthians 3 makes it clear that when we do, we will watch some of our life efforts burn up as if they were wood, hay, and stubble because we expended our lives uselessly, foolishly, sinfully even, there will be no reward for that. Such an idea should instill Christian fear in our daily work life. Our work life should display Christ to the world. Our work life should display Christian fear. And then number five, our work life should display Christian character. Just an overall Christian character. In in verse 1 of chapter 4, masters are told to grant justice and fairness to slaves. They're, They're to do that because they recognize that while their authority may be absolute from a legal standpoint, their authority is not absolute because they too have a master. A higher master who is the very definition of fair and just. So they're to grant those under them The highest in Christian ethics, they are to reflect the character of Christ when they interact with those under them. Well, the same is true for us. We live in a world, frankly, that is crying out for justice and fairness all the time. The the problem is, most of those who are crying out for justice and fairness are trying to detach it from the one who defines justice and fairness. That's why we have such a confused world about justice and fairness. We're Christians. We know the one who defines justice and fairness. We should not have the confusion of the world. We should have the reflection of our Savior. We should have Christian character on display. Displaying his character should come automatically within our work lives, where we spend hours and hours. Remember, what we call our work life was part of the home life context in Paul's day. And he's already tied the attitudes of our home life to the same foundation as our church life. The work of Christ within us. While we like to separate these various aspects of life, you know, I have my church life, I have my home life, I have my work life, we put nice walls between them, we separate them out, I can live really nice and godly in church. It's okay if I yell at my spouse a little bit at home because that's home. Work, I'll just look at it like everybody else. That's how we think of it. Paul says, no, no. Christ is over us in everything. He's really talking about home life here. All of life is under the lordship of Christ. If Christ's character is not on display in our work life, then we are falling short of our calling. As Christians, our Savior has called us to be different. Our Savior has called us to reflect Him. Far too many of us leave inconsequential lives for Christ because we are content with falling short. Let's heed the call of Christ. Let's heed the call today. Our work life should display Christian character. Our work life should display Christ to our world. Principle five. Christian character. Our work life should display Christian character. Our work life should display Christ to our world all the time. This morning, as Paul addressed the slaves and masters here in our text, we've gained principles for our work life. The authority distinction between slaves and masters, it was absolute. Slave was on one end of that spectrum, the master was on the other of authority. Absolute. No slave had any authority and the master had complete authority. Yet, Paul called both in the city of Colossae to display Christ. When we go to work, we're somewhere between the slave and the master on that authority spectrum. All of us have some authority because we can at the very least choose where we work. Yet most of us are under authority of some kind. We're somewhere on that spectrum. Well, if the two ends of the spectrum are display Christ, so are we. Our work life should display Christ in our world. The call extends to us, just as it did to the slaves and the masters in Paul's day. From the written, we've extracted five principles this morning. Five principles that should help us consider how we can display Christ in our work life. One, Our work life should display Christian integrity. Two, Christian diligence. Three, Christian hope. Four, Christian fear. Five, Christian character. Five things that we should have in our lives that work together to allow us to display Christ. Our work life should display Christ to our world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would use your word once more in our lives. Father, this morning we've sat here and we've looked at your word. Tomorrow, most of the the people here will go back into the places of work that you've given them. As that is done, Father, may we all heed your word more fully. May we go out displaying Christ With the hours that you give us in our life that we spend consumed in work, may we display our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.